Thanks for bringing your Bibles with you. I hope you did. If you, you did, our text this morning is from the book of Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 26 to 29. As you're turning there, uh, just let me highlight what Pastor Jeff was talking about with regard to this uh, series that will be starting in a few weeks called Transformed. As uh, you heard, we're going to be partnering with thousands of churches around the country, and there's, there's great energy that's going to be released with all this prayer and emphasis and people focused on the same uh, truths of God's transforming power, and so it's going to be a great opportunity. We're going to kick this off, as he mentioned, on the 12th on a Wednesday night in a couple of weeks, and I hope that you'll be here for that dinner. It's a free dinner. Bubba, hey, cheap date, free dinner, bring your, you know, bring your wife. It'll be great fun. And uh, Steve Graber is uh, the small group pastor at Saddleback Church. He's been there for many years, very capable guy, and so you'll uh, be inspired by him. And we're looking forward to this uh, campaign. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now today we're doing a, uh, an initial service of a three-week series that we've entitled, Now I See You. And what we want to do is consider how we can bridge the gap that exists in various strata of our culture. Today, bridging the racial divide. Next week, we're going to talk about the generational divide, and then the, the third week, the, the gender divide, and try to hear what God's Word has to say to us about these important uh, social and relational issues. So today's text, again, from Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading at verse 29, and as you're able, may I invite you to stand to hear God's Word. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Galatia, says, So in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. May God inspire us through this very important truth. You may be seated. Now, it was quite a few years ago when it used to be acceptable to tell ethnic jokes. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember that. Um, for example, there were Polish jokes. One went like this. A Polak goes into a restaurant and orders a pizza because he's hungry. When it's delivered to his table, the waiter says, do you want me to slice it into four pieces or eight? The Polak pauses and says, you'd better make it four. I'd never be able to finish eight. All right, now I'm giving you permission to laugh. You need permission. I can, I can tell you're hesitant. Otherwise, you, that would have been a real knee slapper. So, so, so you, you have permission to laugh. Uh, how, how many Pollocks does it take to pop popcorn? It takes four. One to hold the pot, three to shake the stove. Example. Of course, then after a while, folks thought, well, that's not such a good idea, you know, not politically correct. Then it became dumb blonde jokes. Remember those? What? All the blondes start mumbling. <laughs> Why doesn't management give blondes coffee breaks? Because it takes too long to retrain them. Why do blondes have TGIF written across their shoes? To remind them that toes go in first. What do you call a brunette standing between two blondes? That's an interpreter. After that, the blondes said, no more of that. So they started dumb men jokes. Why are all dumb blonde jokes one-liners? So men can understand them. <laughs> oh. What is the difference between a man and E.T.? Remember E.T.? What's the difference? 
E.T. phoned home. <laughs> What's the best way to force a man to do his sit-ups? Put the remote control between his toes. I've got a lot more, but we might run out of time. <laughs> now, I'm part Dutch, actually. The Paris name is Dutch and English, and I even love Dutch jokes. A Dutch guy uses an outhouse, accidentally drops a dime down there. He really wants that dime, so he shines a flashlight down there, and he says, oh, is it worth it for a dime? So he throws a quarter down there, and he goes after it. I mean, for, 40, for 35 cents, it's a no-brainer. You know, I don't, I don't mind a good ethnic joke. And then I wonder why it is that I'm so good-natured about a good ribbing. And why other people go ballistic and want to fight or riot when they're called words like spick or kike or nigger or chink or gook or kraut or wop. I said, well, maybe I know the difference. Maybe it's one thing to be kidded about being frugal or thrifty, which is what Dutch jokes are about. And maybe it's another thing to hear emotionally charged words that are being used as weapons of disdain and disgust and hatred, knowing that these words are intended to devalue and demean and dehumanize people. Maybe these kinds of words can lead to a soul damage inside of people, undermining their intrinsic worth as human beings. Maybe you have to experience personally that kind of attack to really understand. Black author Mary Edelman writes about this soul damage. She writes about a kind of internal pain and hurt that doesn't seem to stop. She writes, and I quote, it's utterly exhausting to be black in America. There's no respite, no escape from the badge of color. It is exhausting to be a black student on a white campus or a black employee in a white institution. Or some people automatically assume you're not as smart as whites. There's that constant burden to prove that you're as smart or as honest or as interesting or as motivated as any other person in the place. And it all just tires you out after a while. Maybe she does understand soul damage that comes from racism. Some of us in this church understand this kind of damage. I mean, we, we have a clue. I mean, we get it. And there are others of us who don't have a clue. And we don't get it. We really can't grasp what it is to be discriminated against. Heard, uh, read this uh, interesting account described by a man named Andrew Hackard of a college professor who does an, an interesting exercise with each of his incoming classes each semester. Uh, these classes are almost always attended by predominantly white students and so as they are new to the class at the beginning of the semester, he sets up this scenario. Suppose an official comes to your door tonight and announces that there has been a terrible mistake, that you were supposed to have been raised black, but you weren't. But now that situation has to be rectified, so tonight, at midnight, you're going to turn into a black person, and you're going to have to, you're going to, have to live the rest of your life that way. Now, you, ha you still have all the same inner qualities and all the same characteristics and qualities that you have uh, prior to that, but from now on, the rest of your life is going to be black. One last thing. The company that made the mistake is willing to offer compensatory damages for this little oversight. And so whatever you think is appropriate in terms of compensatory damages will be fine. You just name your price. Then the class is dismissed and asked to come back the next day to put down a yearly figure to be compensated for having to live the rest of their lives as blacks. 
Guess what? After 24 hours of thought, these non-biased, non-discriminatory, open-minded white students, on the average, ask for a million dollars a year. Compensatory damages for having to live the rest of their lives as blacks. After which the, the professor has his speech ready because it happens every semester. He calmly says, I rest my case. You see, if the students ask for nothing, then it would be assumed that skin color isn't really an issue in the new millennium. But the results of the exercise suggest otherwise. And I wonder what you were thinking. You might recommend for damages. You know that skin color is an issue. It's been throughout history. It continues to be an issue throughout the world, not just in America. And I want to say uh, in the context of this message today that I love America. You're looking at a guy who really is passionate about living in this country. The times that I travel overseas, my first impulse upon returning back to the States, my, my, my instinct is to get down on my knees and kiss the ground. I love America. I really do. In so many ways, uh, it is blessed of God. And I am not in any way today in this message attempting to do that American bashing thing that is so popular in our world, so popular in some parts of our culture, sec sectors of our society, and most of our state-funded universities in this nation, and even in the highest levels of office, political office in this country. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not into America bashing. I love America. I think this is the best place in the world to live. Amen. Having said that now, whether we want to admit it or not, our country planted its major cities on land that first had to be depopulated by its native inhabitants. Not only did the early colonists systematically annihilate hundreds of thousands of American Indians through guns and cannons and such, but many of you also realize that the colonists and others introduced diseases into the tribes of America to eradicate the populations. Someone came up with a philosophy and, and, and coined it manifest destiny. It's our destiny, God-given right as white Europeans to take over this continent. And we rationalized and justified our actions on that basis. And some of our forefathers didn't stop there. In order to kickstart the economy of our own struggling young nation, we forcibly kidnapped about 10 million, think about that number now, 10 million Africans from the Ivory Coast of the African continent. We went over there, simply broke up families, changed people, chained people, walked them sometimes several hundred miles to the coast where we shipped them across the Atlantic Ocean, a voyage which oftentimes took as much as four months. Several million perished of disease and starvation in the holds of these slave ships, their bodies pitched over the side. Once they landed on our shores, they were auctioned off to the highest bidder. When slave owners wanted their slaves to work a little harder, they would beat them. They would be starved, maimed, occasionally experienced partial amputations so that they couldn't run, forced to work with a ball and chain. If the slaves were obstinate enough, they'd simply be killed. When slave owners wanted sexual favors, they regularly abused and raped the wives and daughters of these slaves, sometimes right in the presence of their fathers and their husbands. In order to justify this inhumane treatment, what our early forefathers did was simply deny the humanity of slaves. These slaves are referred to as subhuman, bodies without souls. So if you're dealing with a body without a soul, you can do whatever you feel like. Sadly, most pastors and Christian leaders not only kept silent throughout this era, but quite routinely, Christian people bought and sold slaves like everyone else. It was not uncommon for pastors to own and trade slaves themselves. And this unthinkable evil, you know, right now everybody's uncomfortable in the room. 
as we should be. It's painful, isn't it? Sometimes the truth is hard, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And this unthinkable evil lasted until 1865 when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued uh, immediately following the Civil War. The systematic oppression of African Americans continued it for 100 more years and, and still to this day. As recently as 1960, Woolworths refused to serve blacks at their lunch counters. Public drinking fountains were designated whites or blacks. You all know that if a white person got on a public bus, all blacks had to move to the back of the bus. That all began to change with a little woman named Rosa Parks. <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr., from 1967, the year before his assassination, wrote, of the good things in life, the black person has about one half of that of white persons. And with regard to the bad things in life, he has about twice that of whites. Half of all blacks live in substandard housing in this country. Blacks have half the income of whites. Twice as many are unemployed. The rate of infant mortality among blacks is double that of whites. In elementary schools, blacks lag one to three years behind whites. The median income of an African American is 62% that of a white person. The median net worth of blacks is 8% the median net worth of whites. There's no mistake about who has the wealth. Unemployment is nearly twice the amount of the white community. Infant mortality is still twice the rate of the white. African-American mothers are still four times more likely to lose their lives in childbirth than white mothers, largely because of prenatal care. Let me just uh, summarize by saying that most whites today are out of touch with the ongoing structural inequalities that still remain in American society. Therefore, most whites don't think there's a race problem today. They think all of these inequalities ended with the civil rights legislation of the 1960s, and so most whites feel the playing field has been leveled, that equal opportunity has been made available to everybody. Most whites think minorities should just buck it up, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, and stop complaining. On the other hand, most blacks live with the daily residual effect of 400 years of unthinkable oppression from whites. Most blacks are keenly aware of the ongoing systemic inequalities that exist in our society. And most blacks have little enthusiasm for accepting the status quo until the status quo is, in fact, fair for everyone. So, whites think the only problem is blacks are not trying, and blacks say whites don't get it. They think the, the playing field has been leveled. And let me just say, progress has been made. Good progress has made, been made. But there's never been a level playing field in this country. Not from day one. Not yet. We're still working on that. And it's possible, friends, to actually build a bridge. We can do it with God's help. A prominent Christian writer writes, Racism is as wide as the oceans, neo-Nazis, shining path, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, IRA. It's as old as the hills, Egyptians and Philistines, Assyrians and Hittites, Sardanians and Greeks, Inquisition to Crusades, all the way to our own slavery narrative. And it's close to home, South Central L.A. in recent years, Crown Heights, South Miami, Cincinnati, Ohio, right under our noses here in Muncie. A few years ago, we tried to rename Broadway Martin Luther King Boulevard. It was really difficult to do and all the way to this week, where some knothead leaves graffiti in the hallway on campus at Ball State of a black lynching. Really. Let me remind you of Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Galatians 3, 28 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now hang on to that. 
The church is the one place in the world where there are all these superficial delineations which have to be left at the door. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, successful or not so successful, athletic or clumsy, black or white, man or woman, young or old. In the church, we are family. We are one. And all of these, these superficial separations have to be erased when we think about the people of God. I want to attempt to answer, at least briefly this morning, three questions. The questions are, what is racism? What is it? Bigotry, what is it? Second, what causes it? And thirdly, what cures it? <laughs> easy, easy questions, right? <laughs> let's, uh, let's jump in and just briefly try to touch these. First of all, what, what is it? The broad definition is simply a negative passion towards groups of people. A negative emotion, attitude, passion toward groups of people. Prejudice or prejudging people is arriving at conclusions without sufficient information about everybody. It's imputing to an entire group of people the negative characteristics of just a few. And we all are kind of guilty of this. Uh, you know, at the risk of generalizing, we're, we all do it. It's easy to have a negative experience with a single member of a particular race or ethnicity and project that bias on the entire group. For example, uh, you could run into a cab driver or a waiter in an ethnic restaurant or a local physician in the emergency room. It's easy to do. But a broad definition is this negative passion toward a whole group of people. So second question is this, what causes it? And this is the part of it that is of curiosity to me. The underlying causes of racism can be studied, and sociologists give us a clue. As painful as it is for some of us to admit, the number one, the number one source, cause of racism in the, in, the, in the world are parents. Parents play the single greatest role in creating biased attitudes in the lives of their children. Parents, to a large extent, determine whether their kids are going to be bigots or bridge builders. The research all shows that prejudice, mindset, and attitudes are formed early in life. Careless parents can turn their children into mean-spirited bigots by the time they're five years old. But careful parents can go out of their way to instill an appreciation in their kids for God's obvious plan of racial diversity in the human race. Diversity seen as a gift from the hand of a loving God. Because God's all about diversity in, in racial expression. All you have to do is study the world. And what we learn is that God loves us all. Red and yellow, black and white. They're precious in his sight. I did some reflection on this subject from my own past uh, in preparation for this message. And I, I reminisce about, uh, f uh, about my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Morgan. He was my teacher and my basketball coach. And now this, uh, let me give you a historical context. This is 47 years ago, 1967. I'm in the sixth grade, and I only remember two things Mr. Morgan said. One was in the context of a post-game conversation that he had with us boys after we had lost the, the, the finals of the county tournament in overtime. Now, those of you who are athletes, my wife Beth finds it amazing that I can recall specific moments of my athletic experience growing up. Uh, in specific detail, and I can, I can describe parts of that game from 47 years ago as a sixth grader that I shouldn't remember. I mean, it's trivia, but I remember it, and I remember 
we lost, and we lost in overtime, and it was devastating. Now, my, my teacher, Coach Mr. Morgan, he was one of these, uh, he was an older fellow at the time, you know, probably about my age, and he, <laughs> and he, he was high on expectation and low on affirmation. He was, he was old, old school, high on expectation, low on affirmation. So at the end of this, this basketball game in sixth grade, he's in the locker room with us boys, and he, and he made this statement, and I remember it, and I quote, he said, boys, you played a whale of a ball game. And he said it more than once. And it, and it imprinted me. You know, it helped me. It encouraged me. Well, you know, geez, I, we did make an effort. We lost in overtime, but, you know, we tried. The second thing I remember Mr. Morgan saying, I can recall the time of day. I can see the classroom. I can see the sunlight coming through the window. I can, I can tell you where I was seated, seated in, the, in the room. I can tell you who was sitting next to me. I can tell you where Mr. Morgan was standing. I can, relative to the door, to the blackboard, to his desk, I can tell you what he was wearing. Now remember, this was 1967. And Mr. Morgan that day, kind of out of the clear, clear sky, started talking about Martin Luther King Jr. And what he said was a very disparaging comment. And it implied of Dr. King a suspicious moral character. And I will confess to you that that imprinted my life for years and years and years and cultivated a bias which, if I am honest, I struggle with even now. Isn't that wild? There is a parental peace. Beyond that, though, there are social realities that tend to fan the flames of why racism exists. What causes it? There, there is parents, there is family members, and then there are teachers. Those three have a, have a large part to play in the formation of our racial biases. There is, in addition to that, these other social factors. One is economic pressure. You may be able to keep your mild dislike for a particular group of people if it never impinges upon your life. Or you might be able to keep your bigotry under wraps as long as it doesn't influence you. But what if members of this other group position themselves in such a way that it puts your employment or your housing situation in jeopardy? This might be enough pressure to bust the bigotry feelings loose inside of you. Let me give you an example of this. This is... This is astonishing, but between 1882 and 1930, two researchers found that there was a direct correlation between the price of cotton and the number of black lynchings in the rural south. When the price of cotton was high, and therefore the, the economic pressure was low, the number of black lynchings went down. When the price of cotton came down and economic pressure increased, the number of black lynchings went up. It's crazy time. So economic pressure can cause it to burst out. Another is pressures of conformity. This is just a generalized social pressure. Sociologists say that every culture, every, every uh, 
every society develops over time language and culture and custom and folklore stories that inevitably lead to typecasting of certain groups in a society. And this typecasting eventually leads to devaluing of certain types of people. Let me give you an example. Name the ethnicity of the leaders of organized crime in this country. Italians, right? How many of you are, are Italian in the room? You don't mind us knowing. Anyone? Don't be hesitant. I won't. Well, the reason you won't come clean is you're, you're mobsters. You're connected. <laughs> See, that's silly, isn't it? All Italians are connected to the mob. Let me ask you this. What is the color of the best athletes in the NBA? You say black. But do we sometimes reduce black people to the level of their athletic prowess? Hmm? So you see the typecasting that it can easily form. Social scientists suggest that if bias does not originate from your parents, family, or teachers, then there is a level of bias that each society will impress you with. And many of us conform to it without even being aware of it. And it does happen to us. And then under the right circumstances and with the right personalities involved, all hell can break loose. In recent years, we've had the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia with hundreds of thousands brutalized and murdered. Parts of Africa in recent years with tribal conflicts escalating into mass genocide. Some cases with food rotting on ships in the harbor within 50 miles of millions of starving people. It's crazy. It's demonic. It's horrible. It's evil. Today, right now, in this moment, there are 1.5 million refugees in the nation of Syria because of sectarianism. People starving and suffering, no place to go, under constant threat. It's all about racism and ethnicity and tribal differences and sectarianism. You're different, so you're bad. You're different, I don't understand you, I'm afraid of you, you're bad, you must be suppressed. Now, if at some point this begins to have another dimension to it, a deeper meaning, a level of evil that cannot be explained in sociological terms, if that is your t intuition, then you are right. Because there's a, there's a final thing that causes racism, and this is really the predominant cause. And that is what we might call human corruption. The Bible calls this sin. In racism, there is the unmistakable stench of sin. It's none other than the evidence of human depravity. Sin, that southbound gravitational pull inside of human beings that seeks to label and exclude and demean certain groups of people for the sheer satisfaction of having the power to do it. There's something inside of us that wants to be superior, that wants to be big, that wants to be strong, that wants to be smart, that wants to be in, and is perfectly willing to make other people out and weak and small and different. Now, before you think, well, that's not true of me, uh, let me just make my confession. That's true of me, for sure. I have an example of this. A few years ago, I got bumped up to business class on an international flight. Now, if you've ever flown internationally, and some of the long legs that we travel when we go to Kazakhstan, these are hours. These are uh, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours in an airplane. And, of course, we always fly coach. So we get back in the cattle section and, you know, I'm 6'4", and so what I have to do is I have to actually go into, into a, a, a semi-conscious state. And, and literally, I, and I tell myself I am now Gumby. And I just fold myself up into a little ball like this, and I just I sit there for 12 hours. 
And so when I'm at the ticket counter and the woman says to me, I'm sorry, Mr. Paris, but, but we, we're going to have to bump you up to business class. <laughs> if you've ever flown business class, this is a most wonderful experience because this is where they give you facials and massages. <laughs> they serve you table wines and imported beef. The stewardess, all the stewardesses in business class have had to finish at least in the top five of Miss America. They are very, very nice. And not only is she pretty, but she'll take your shoes off for you and put the little slippers on your feet to make sure your feet are nice and soft. And, and then she'll help you recline your seat and, so your, your per and, and adjust your personalized TV screen for you so that you can watch the movie in private. And I, I'm there enjoying the movie and talking to all the other affluent people in business class. And I'm just about to doze off. And I notice that people from economy class are coming into our section to use our restroom. <laughs> you know, there's only a curtain that hangs between those two sections. And I'm thinking they need to put a solid door there with a lock on it. And my impulse is to reach up and, and signal the, sec the, 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 the attendant so that, well, I can just be close to her and to tell her, <laughs> and to tell her to keep the riffraff out of our restaurant. <laughs> Do you know how long it took me to actually get to that state of mind? About seven minutes. What is that? What is that? I'm making a confession. You know what I'm talking about? That's the thing within each one of us that's just plain bad. That's evil. There's something within each one of us that wants us to be in the inner circle. And once we're in, we want other people out and pressed down. We want to stay in the strong and the powerful and the privileged spot. Listen, I'm all for civil rights legislation and education and renaming streets to honor members of another race. But in the final analysis, what causes bigotry is the sin that is in you and the sin that is in me. It's true. Last question. What's the cure? What's the cure? Well, let me frame it this way. Something's going to have to happen in our hearts and something's going to have, have to happen to our hands. Now let's talk about the heart. The New Testament clear. God is no respecter of persons. That he is utterly unaffected by a human being's color or ethnicity. Not affected whatsoever. And in fact, the diversity of all of it is a delight to God. He loves us all. Every color of the rainbow. He cares and he loves us. Everyone. John 13, 35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. God loves us all. And so the call of God on us is to love one another. Remember, Every human being is a person made in the image and likeness of God, a person for whom Jesus Christ gave his life, a potential brother or sister in the family of God, a person with a heart and a name and a story and a future. Every person. You've never looked into the eyes of another human being that doesn't matter to God. You have never laid eyes on another person who is not the image bearer of the God you claim to know and love and serve. You have never shook hands with someone who Christ did not die for. Every person you meet has value and worth and dignity in God's eyes. Mm -hmm. Something has to happen 
to us at a heart level. And the question that I ask myself today, the question I ask you is, has it happened to you yet? Do you see people differently? Look on the screen with me at 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. It says, if a man claims to love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. Whoa. Now, don't, don't react to that too quickly. Don't say, well, no, no, I love everybody. Really? Really? Is there one name I could mention to you that might violate that, that standard? Hmm. Translation, when you open your heart up to God and you are filled with the love of Christ, his son, when you've had that heart renewal, when you've been born again, when you become a Christian, your heart is going to be softened and melted and cleansed and purified by the love of Christ. When the Holy Spirit takes up residency in your life, the first fruit he produces in you, according to Galatians 5, is love. Do you love everyone? No matter what. Hmm. It's challenging, isn't it? If your heart has been changed, then you are going to see people differently. That's the truth. Now here's the second part. Not only does our hearts need to be changed, but our hands. And by that I mean friendships, relationships have to be cultivated. Ethnic and racial barriers always begin to crumble the day each of us decides to build a sincere cross-racial friendship at school or at work or at church or in the neighborhood. When we have a genuine friendship building, love and trust will grow and hearts will be knit together. And then we'll find ourselves protesting vigorously when a bigot makes a generalized slur or that whole race or ethnic group and we're able to say to them, don't even start, you're talking to the wrong guy. Several years ago, the mayor of our city announced that the city was in financial straits and austerity measures would have to be engaged and one of the measures that he was proposing was to close down the community centers, three community centers here in town that were owned and operated by the, by the city, city budget. And I knew just instinctively, because I didn't know firsthand, that those centers served a population base with programs and meals and that sort of thing that would be desperately missed if the centers weren't open. And I don't know if, I, I don't remember if I was prompted by God to think about that or someone put a bug in my ear and got me thinking about it. But I remember taking it to prayer. And I said, God, you know, what, a, what about this business of these community centers? Because I had no reference point. I had no connection. I had no relationships with anyone. And I just asked God what he wanted me to do or what he thought about that. And God said, well, this is pretty serious. And I said, yeah, I guess so. And I said, well, so what? He said, well, Here's what I want you to do. This is what God said to me, first thing. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your car. I want you to drive it down into the neighborhood, down to the hood. He said, I want you to get out of your car, and I want you to start walking around, talking to people. I said, you, you talking to me? I said, this is, this is what I remember thinking in my prayer. I said, look, I don't even drive through the neighborhood, let alone stop, you know, with my nice car, stop and get out, walk around. 
Yeah, I'm not going to do that. You got the wrong guy for that job. God said, well, you don't have to do anything. Do you ask me what, what you should do? And I, I'm telling you, go down there, walk around, meet some people. And so what I did was I went down to what was originally the South Madison Community Center. And I parked my car within a block of that place or so. so and I got out and I walked around and walked all, all the way to the center and walked in, met the people there and talked to them a little bit. Then I drove up to where the Bewley Center is and I parked in that parking lot and I got out and I walked around the Whiteley neighborhood a little bit and walked back into the center and talked to some of the folks there. And, uh, you know, and I got some looks. Cause I'm, and I'm out of place. And I felt out of place. And then so I went back and I said, well, God, what do you want? You know, I said, all right, I did it. Parked it, got out, walked around, talked to some folks. And then he began to tell me about some other things that I was supposed to be responsible for with regard to keeping those centers open. And that's a whole other story. But I can tell you this, that the intentionality of engaging the minority community here in Muncie on a personal level has been singularly as enriching an experience for me in my life as anything that's ever happened to me. And I, I share that with you because that's not going to happen automatically. You say, oh, yeah, I'm an athlete, you know, and I, you know, and I played sports with these guys, and, you know, and that's all good, and so forth. Well, I did, I did too. But this is a different kind of level that I'm talking about. This is, this is a level of investment that allows you over time to develop the kind of love and trust and esteem that will enable you at some point to go, now I see you. Now I see you. I confess I'm never going to completely get it because I, I can't. But I have a better perspective than I've had. And it really helps me to be more careful to what's really happening. These kinds of relationships then lead to another thing that impacts our hands, which is a shared <laughs> partnership in work and ministry. And so part of the relationships that I formed were in connection with the work in the community centers and that sort of thing. And, and so these are lasting friendships that have evolved into all kinds of activities and programs and partnerships and shared ministries, which we continue to do to this day through the life of our church in the, in the context of those trusting relationships. And it's wonderful. I don't... I, I hesitate to mention this because I don't want it to draw unnecessary attention to me, but just to say to you that this is, this is possible because I'm the, I was the least likely candidate. You know, here, you see who I am? I'm a man. I'm white. I've got... I've got all of the cultural advantages. When, when our culture gives advantage to individuals, I am like exhibit A of the person who gets the best treatment. So in many ways, I am a product of the opportunities that the culture has afforded to me as a white man. Now, if you push me too hard on that, I'll push back and say, well, this is what I've done to achieve what I have. Nobody's handed me, ultimately, anything. 
But I got on the right track because culture allowed me to get on there. And I get that. And so I don't mean to draw attention to myself because I'm, I may not be the best example. But something for which I am as proud of as anything that's ever happened to me is when the Coalition of Concerned Clergy here, the Black Clergy Association in Muncie, invited me to keynote at the Martin Luther King Jr. worship celebration a few years ago. And I am the only white guy who's ever been invited to do that. I'm so proud of that. I was asked to do something in the service the year before that called the occasion. This is something in the African-American tradition where, where someone stands up and just explains why we're here, the occasion. And one of my friends called me and said, would you, would you do the occasion at the MLK worship celebration? I said, sure, I'll do the occasion. I've seen it done. I know what it is. I'll do it. And so when I got up, I, I tried to be humorous, and I said, I was confused when I was invited to do the occasion when Pastor Jackson called me and asked me to do this. Uh, I misunderstood him. I thought he said that you needed an old Caucasian. And that's why I'm here. And I floated out there and they laughed. I was so happy that everybody laughed. But I didn't know if that was going to work. So the old Caucasian got to preach at the MLK event. I was pretty proud of that. Let me just conclude with this. Here's a, here's a principle of the kingdom of God. He who has an ear, let him hear. Where there is love and unity, there's great power. Anytime there is love and unity at work, there is the release of the energy of God. It happened on the day of Pentecost where you had a multitude of people gathered in one place in one mind, one accord, power. And the same thing happens anytime we are able to bridge the gap between our differences, whatever those might be, to love one another and unify around the causes that honor Christ. I believe that this is the culmination of all things. Heaven is going to be as dynamic as it is, in my opinion, because when we're all together, you know, the culmination of all things is actually going to be the gathering of people from every tribe and people and language and ethnicity for the purpose of the white, hot worship of God and of His Lamb, the Son, Jesus Christ. And when we gather together all in that place at one, one time, unified and in love with one focus, one purpose, which is to honor God and to worship Him forever, I'm just telling you that's going to exceed anything that we have ever experienced or even imagined. It's going to be explosive, off the scale, unbelievable. And, and, you, and we will all realize this really is heaven. Look at this. Wow. It's going gonna, it's gonna to send us all over the top. Now, here's my challenge to us. Why don't we start practicing that kind of experience along the way? Loving one another and unifying our lives in God-honoring ways so that God is worshipped and we find His power and presence released among us. It could be that this love and unity, the, the bridging of the gap, this, this coming together, across the racial divide is one of the key pieces that will release and bring forth the renewing, reviving presence of God in our day. And may we be part of that. 
may we be a central part in our community of making that happen. He who has an ear, let him hear. I want to pray a brief prayer for us. Would you stand if you're able to hear it? Father in heaven, oh God, please, by the power of the Holy Spirit, cause the values and the memories and the lessons of this sermon to linger in all of our hearts for Christ's sake and the people's sake. Amen.